Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy B. Hi, I'm Lucy B, and I am a compulsive overeater. I just want you guys to know, first of all, congratulations to the beautiful women sitting in the front row. Thank you for your years of abstinence. Thank you for being so funny. Thank you for showing up. Thanks for being part of my program. Congratulations to everybody who took tips today, and congratulations to all the newcomers. Um, I had this big debate with Mickey before I got up here, which shows my defective character, which is big shotism. I really just wanted to go by Lucy, because there would only be one Lucy in the world. But then I thought, no, I have to go with Lucy B, because if somebody tells there's a sponsor to speak, it will have to be Lucy B. Um, So just to get the statistics out of the way, um, I first came to Overeaters Anonymous in 1986. I uh, went to the Hill Street meeting, which is a very early morning meeting uh, in the Santa Monica, Venice Beach area. Um, I did it at the suggestion of a life coach who said I had issues with food. And I kind of, I, I sort of thought I did, but I sort of was embarrassed that it was showing. And so I went with his wife and I thought, no, 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 these people make me want to eat pizza. And I never went back. And then I came back at the suggestion of a therapist in 2006. Um, It took me two years to get abstinent. My abstinence date is January 28th, uh, 2008, so I'm nine years plus abstinent. My abstinence is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and an optional snack. Um, Thanks. At this height, which is five, six and a half, I've been 125. I've been 165. That's about my top as far as I know. I have been a size six and I've been a size 16. Right now I'm right in the middle around a 10 or 12 and I wish I was a six and I don't care that I'm not. So, um, okay, to start at the beginning, I was born to one of those really incredibly perfect families. Like a gorgeous father, he's six four, he went to the right schools, he was a basketball player, he's super funny, he's super nice. My grandfather spoke in front of the Supreme Court, he spoke Latin extemporaneously, my mother was beautiful. they're like really old families from California, and we had this kind of incredibly privileged, amazingly kind of golden life. And it, you know, what I think of is back in the day when I was young, we had Life magazine, there'd be this beautiful, I know the young ones don't know about it, there'd be these sort of beautiful families running around with flexi flyers, and the moms would be looking happy, and, and my mom was that way. And... Um, we moved to Southeast Asia because my dad decided that being a lawyer was not his calling, and his, being, his calling was to save the world and to help uh, people who were impoverished and had less money. So at the age of six, I moved to Southeast Asia. Um, I had not seen my dad at that point for three months because he had gone ahead of me. I had 42 mosquito bites on each leg. Um, there were six inch to a foot long worms in the monsoon drawers. I had a squat toilet, which is actually very efficient, but I had a squat toilet. Um, I was constantly covered with ticks, which I'd entertain myself by picking them off at night, and I went to a school in which there were virtually no other white children. And I was unbelievably lonely. I was unbelievably lonely. 
So my, my brother had a friend, which was great, in the neighborhood, which was wonderful. So my friends were books. So I had these books, and all I wanted was fantasy books. I didn't want to read history, or I didn't want to read about your life. I wanted to read about elves and fairies. And, and the other thing was we were living in a British Commonwealth country, and so we had these English books, and they had high tea in it. And the high tea would go on for pages, literally be a whole page. And it'd be like sponge cake, and then they had like a cream tea. And when I finally knew what a cream tea was, when I finally went to England, I started screaming. And the person next to me was like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's cream tea! It's cream tea! It's cream and it's muffins and it's jam! Oh my god! And they were like, you're really excited. Um, <laughs> because I'd read about it my whole life. So I'd read about these books and read about these books and um, read the books, rather. And and I was just incredibly lonely. And the other thing I did is I learned to bake. And so I would bake. And then I did ballet. And I was really good at ballet. I was really, really good at it. And so that was my life. And then I came back to the United States. Except now, I was no longer American. I was Southeast Asian. I had not seen large cars. I had not seen ice cream. I had not seen milk. I had didn't know how to play Foursquare. I didn't know how to play kickball. I didn't know. I had not seen television in three years. I, I didn't know how to dress. So my neighbor, whose um, dad was the best baker in town by profession, she took me aside and said, you know, your shorts are too long and you've got to wear your shorts, you know, shorter because that's how boys will like you more. And, and then, of course, the amazing thing was we would get free food after we'd come home from school, and that was incredible. So then I tried to fit in there, and I became a more serious ballet dancer. I was actually the head duck in Peter and the Wolf. Um, so I became more serious, and I started going to a pre-professional school, and they said you're one of the best dancers in the school, and we're not going to put you in the production of Nutcracker, which is an internationally known production, uh, because you won't fit in the costumes. And my best friend went on to play Clara in the Nutcracker, if you know the show. And so I was there, sitting in the back of the opera house, watching my friend be the lead in the show. And so I learned very quickly there was something terribly, terribly wrong with me. And, and I, that what was wrong with me was that I was fat. And I also knew something was wrong with me because I grew up at that point in very strict religious schools where there's a lot of emphasis on sinning and not sinning. And have you sinned? How many sins have you had? You know, can you count your sins? Asking God for forgiveness because you were basically really awful. So I had this, this twin kind of thing of I'm really sinning all the time and I'm too fat to do what I really love. And in the meantime, my parents, these really, you know, amazingly perfect and wonderful and incredible people, thought because they were perfect, incredible, and wonderful, why should they ever have to tell me that I was? You know, that really wasn't what they signed up for. They're like, you get good grades, you're fine. So when we were in Southeast Asia, they would do things like, you know, I was severely bitten by a dog. Oh, she'll be fine. You have rheumatic fever. She'll be fine. She doesn't need to go to a doctor. You're in Afghanistan. We'll leave you alone. You're in India. You'll go to the pool by yourself. You're in Calcutta, you'll go to the Salvation Army Hostel. So I learned very quickly nobody was coming. So it's all about my survival, my self-will, and doing it on my own. And Mickey had to remind me tonight, tonight that I had to bring my higher power up here. Because given my own choice, I will do it on my own because I'm, I think that you won't help me. And that's what I've learned in this room. If you're a newcomer, I was so scared. I sat in the back of the room. I came late. I left early. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. So if you're a newcomer, just come to a few meetings, talk to people, take a look at some of the literature. It might be confusing, but you'll get to know you'll get to know us, and hopefully we're not too frightening. 
So then I hit puberty, and I realized that boys like girls who are really thin. So I decided I couldn't be thin, but what I could be was dumb, because I figured boys also didn't like girls who were smart. So I started immediately to fail school. So I was failing school. At that point, I weighed about 165, and I was doing very strange things like wearing long bathrobes to cover my butt, or as I was obsessed with my bottom, or I would order these um, inflatable pants that I would inflate, and those, those were supposed to, like, make your legs shrink, or, you know, and I would do that thing where you open up the refrigerator and you just stare, and you stare and you stare as if sun, suddenly, magically, you know, food's going to appear in it, and I would just eat all the time. I wasn't eating, I was drinking, I was, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was, you know, chasing boys around. I was actually having a very good time, but... Um, <laughs> So then I would do things like, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to see me, see me in a swimsuit, so I would do what any normal person was. I would go swimming with my jeans on. So everybody would be, like, swimming in a swimsuit. I'd be in my, my jeans on. Like, like nobody's going to notice, right, because you have jeans on in a pool. Um, so that's what I would do. And then I, it was these strange diets. So I'd, I'd go to this Catholic girls' school, and, um, and I don't want to blame Catholicism at all, at, at all. This is my experience of my higher power. This is, has nothing to do with the religion of Catholicism. I have the utmost respect for all religions. I don't want to say anything about it. But the girls' school, not a lot to do besides eat. So my idea was the snack was eight donuts. Uh, my friend Jane had more than eight, but I, my idea of a snack was eight donuts. And then at night it would be cornbread and honey and butter and, and everything like that. And then, you know, the big entertainment was to go to you know, uh, eat, like go to Denny's or go to the local golf club. And so then you would have fries and chili and burgers. And that was our, you know, entire recreation. So that was my story. And then there was bizarre diets. There was the all fruit diet. Then I went to Kentucky Fried Chicken and I thought I can't work there. I mean, I was working there, so I thought I won't eat the whole summer. So I ate the whole summer. I smoked cigarettes, had a crush on a guy who had a girlfriend, drank Perrier because it was supposed to be healthy, and spit out cottage cheese into our garbage can. Because, and I lost like 20 pounds. So then I went to college, gained it back. So this went up and down and up and down and up and down for an incredibly long amount of time. And then in 2006, I started seeing this therapist who was a, a food therapist. Oh, I went to see a Turkish healer who said to say three Hail Marys and suck on a sugar cube. Not sure what the sugar cube part. Then I went to see a hypnotherapist that says I eat moderation and I love green tea. Um, I signed up for incredibly expensive gyms. I had dermatologists take pictures of me half naked so that they could sculpt off my cellulite. I had scrapey things where you rubbed your cellulite. So I, I did a number of different uh, interesting things. Um, so I go to this food therapist, and she had many, many years of abstinence, and she said, have you considered going to OA? Well, I'd been in a relationship program before, so I knew the 12 steps worked, and I said, no, no, I'll go if it's convenient. Well, as you guys know, OA is not convenient. It's not convenient to be here at 5.30 on a Saturday, so it wasn't like, I thought it'd be like a drive-through. You just pull up, you go through, you get your OA, you come out the other side, you're done, you come back. So, and she kept saying, you know, you, you need to do this. And um, I had a particularly bad binge that night. And my um, type of binging would always involve going into the pantry, and I would just say, I just need one thing. And I would take that one thing, and then it would be the next thing. And then it would be, okay, I'm going to make the ice cream sundae, and then the potato chips, and then everything like this. Then I would go to the alcohol. Then I would be, have to be done with the alcohol. I would come back to the solids, and then I would stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning watching music on television. So just so you're clear, there's no screen on. There's just songs, you know. So that's what I'm doing with my time. And that would take till about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And then my husband would say, what were you doing last night? And he'd be like, 
oh, I was working, you know. So that was that was what I did. So I, I come and I start going to OA and I start going to OA and, and I don't really do what they suggest. I don't get a sponsor. I don't do anything they suggest. I come late. I leave early. I, I just keep binging. I get six months. I get nine months. I go to a wedding. They put out full pasta bowls. I eat the pasta, so that's the end of that. And then I go to an inn and they've got cookies on the table, so I eat the cookies. So that's that, and I organize a trip to Paris, and like everybody else, I'm going to trip to Paris based on what I'm going to eat. And so I'm not going to the Eiffel Tower, not going to the Louvre Museum. I am having oysters, and I'm t- I tell my best friends is what I'm eating, get off, have this to eat, go back to the hotel room, start binging on cheese crackers that are in there. I wake up the next morning, I think, oh my God, I lost my abstinence, I'm binging. So that two-week vacation I ruined. Um, I come back, my dog is seriously ill. Uh, the dog has um, some form of cancer. They're not sure what it is. I call my sponsor at the time. I haven't called, and I haven't talked to in three weeks. I call the sponsor, and the sponsor said, you know, I, we're not working together anymore. I've, I've moved on. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. I called somebody in AA who called somebody else. Uh, who calls somebody else. They say, call this woman, Leslie. I call her. She's home when she's never home. That's the first God shot. I talked to Leslie. And she's kind of grumpy, but I'm like, okay, whatever. So I talked to Leslie. And since she said she was in a really bad mood. But so I talked to Leslie, and she says, where do you sit? And I'm panic-stricken because I don't sit anywhere. I sit where nobody can see me. So if you're new, I get it. Just If you don't relate to me, just keep coming back. Just, you know, try to talk to somebody. So I sit in the back, and I'm so scared. And Leslie says, okay, go to five meetings a week. Take commitments at the meeting. And call me at 6.30 in the morning. I didn't know what a commitment was. I had never been to five meetings in my life. And I did not get up until 9. And so I just said, oh, sure, I'll do that. And, um, and that's what I did. So I want to talk a little bit about recoveries like. I've learned to show up on time. Um, I've learned to act better than I feel. I've learned to be kind to people I really don't like. I've learned that talking to newcomers makes you feel better. I've learned that sponsees aren't there to irritate you. They're actually there to call you up when you need it most. I've learned that making outreach calls makes you feel better, doesn't make me feel better, doesn't make the other person. I've learned that my higher power is all-forgiving, all-loving, and omnipresent. Tonight I was really scared, and all these people came in, and they were like, hi, Lucy, and there were newcomers, and I got to talk to people, and I got to focus on somebody other than myself. I've learned that my higher power will show up at the most odd time, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about my mom. Uh, My mom's name is Shauna. Um, I never felt that my mother understood me. I always felt everybody else loved her, but she didn't love me. So my mother goes in for, uh, my mother has a bit of dementia, and in the last two years of her life, she's been telling me how much she loved me mm-hmm. and holding me and kissing me. And I was able, through the grace of this program, to accept that and to forgive her 100%. And my mother used to say, I'm so fat, I have no discipline. And I could forgive her for saying that to me, too. She would used to say, you're not going to get that guy who's too good looking for you. He's going to leave you. And I, and I could forgive that as well. So my mother goes in for kidney cancer, and about three days later they say, the cancer's everywhere, she's not going to come out. So we get her home for hospice, and I don't know what to pray for. Do you pray your mother dies? Do you pray your mother lives? And I just kept saying radical acceptance. And I was contacted every morning by people in this program. I would wake up, I would sit down, there would be a series of texts, and I would say, okay, what do I have to do next? Okay, I've got to eat breakfast. Okay, then I can go to sleep. I can take care of my mom. I can tell her I love her. And so, on a, I think it was on a Wednesday, I said, a friend of mine picked me up, and he said, uh, let's go to the Al-Anon meeting. I said, sounds great. So I see my mom. I say, I love you, Mom. And then I thought, oh, what if I don't see her again? I go back. I say, I love you, Mom. And at the Al-Anon meeting, 
sharing about how much I love my mother, and she dies. She dies at 12.50. And I'm walking down the street with my friend, who's in a 12-step program, and I think, I'm walking down the street like everything's okay. My mother just died. And I get down on my knees, and it was a spiritual experience. I am filled with the most profound gratitude. I was there for my mother. I couldn't have been there for my mother eight years ago. I was there for my mother. I knew my mother loved me after 60 years of wondering, 60 years of wondering why she didn't accept me. I knew my and I was on my knees on the streets of San Francisco sobbing because I was grateful, because I was rejoicing, because all I could think is I am so lucky. I am so lucky. And thank you, God. I haven't drank. I haven't binged. You know, I had, at most I had some raspberries and some, I don't know, granola. Call it something. And this is what God gave me. God arranged for me to be out of the house, to be one of my oldest friends, to be at an Al-Anon meeting, and to be able to accept my mother and love my mother. And that's, to me, everything what this program is about. And if you're here not believing in God, I, I get it. You know, I totally get it. I have a... I have a sponsee for her. God is her animals and the power of love in the world. And if you're here and you don't think it'll work for you, I never thought it would work for me. I get that, too. If you're here and you don't think that you can stop whatever you're doing, I get that, too. I've been here with people who've been binging, purging for 30 years. People who took 20 years to get abstinent. And there's absolutely hope in this room. And there's hope because people put their hand out to me. Today, people wrote to me and said, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing your speech. I'm looking forward to hearing you share. You know, because they knew that I was concerned. They knew that I was nervous. And when I came in here, I didn't want anybody to put their hand out to me. I, I was like this. I have friends. Get the F away. Okay? So, but people put their hand out to me and say, you know, I know how you can get through this. I know how you can get through this with your mother, with your husband, with your dog, with whatever it is. So I just want to say thanks so much for asking me. Congratulations to Chip Takers. Thank you, Leslie, for, for asking me to speak. And keep coming back. Are there any questions? Yes. Did you find it difficult um, working the 12 steps of OA um, after you had worked them in another 12 step program? did I, the question is, did I find it difficult working the 12 steps of OA after I'd already worked them in another program? And the answer is no, because I was in the relationship program. I really didn't work them. I got to step seven, so I thought I was golden. So I really didn't find it hard, and I was also utterly terrified of my sponsor. So, and for me, that was, for me, that really works. You know, and for other people, it doesn't. So I really didn't, so I didn't come in here, well, I came in here initially with a lot of baggage, like, oh, I know how this works, but by the time I lost the dog, binged my way through Paris, ruined the vacation, got fired, I was literally on my knees, sobbing. So I was, I was at that point pretty open. You're welcome. Hi, I just want to thank you for your being you talked about stopping doing things. Um, can you talk about a point in your abstinence where it was difficult to start doing something that you needed to do for your recovery? Uh, the question from Jessalyn was, I t- 
talked about stopping doing things. Can I talk about starting doing things? Yes. Um, my theory, my own experience, is that stopping is a consequence of consistent action, of constantly taking the same action, reading, writing, getting down on your knees, and that being willing to start something new is the same. Praying, praying, praying. But I have to go down really far before I'm willing to start. Like, I had to give up gluten flour, and I only did it after I had an IV in my arm in the hospital because I couldn't keep any food down. So I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, I'll start something new. What a good idea. Um, so starting, starting things, I think, is the same. Is I'm not willing right now. Pray for willingness. I'm not willing right now. Pray for willingness. I had this happen the other day. My sister-in-law has cancer, and um, I had to drive my mother-in-law to the hospital, which is a ninth circle of hell. And the hospital was an hour and a half away. And I was like, you know what? This is a bad situation. Not one terrible thing is going to come out of my mouth. I'm just going to stay in my lane, and I'm going to prepare to do that. So I think a lot of it is just consistent effort and being willing. And it's not always in our time to be willing. My experience is a lot of times it's in God's time to be willing, and it's just not mine. I hope that answered that. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm just curious if you've ever experienced thinking, thinking, and if so, how do you... Have I ever experienced thinking, thinking every morning? Call me at 7.30. <laughs> every morning. I am not one of those people who wakes up with birds and butterflies. What I do is I take action. I get on my knees. I read my thing. I do my gratitude list. I do my meditation. I call somebody, and then the thinking, thinking is gone. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>